Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome and thanks for joining me. I just finished talking with Mark Muhlenbeld about his new book, Demonic Warfare, Taoism, Territorial Networks, and the History of a Ming Novel. This came out with University of Hawaii Press in 2015. And the kind of work that this book does, I think, is really interesting and really important. So what Mark is asking us to do is to take some of the categories that we kind of knowingly or unknowingly bring to how we understand the history of China, um, the history of books, the history of literature, the history of religious practice, and suspend them, trouble them, get rid of them, problematize them, so that we can look with new eyes and see and understand the ways that even a particular novel, and I'll talk about that in a, in a second or two, can in and of itself be enmeshed in a context that is all about um, not just literature, but uh, religion and community and theater and ritual all at the same time in a way that makes all of those categories and all of those terms much, much richer um, and more open and more complicated um, and just kind of different um, as a result. So put another way, this is a study that uses a very particular case in order to trouble and really productively trouble some much larger concepts and much larger themes. So the novel that we're going to talk about and the focus of this book and the focus of the conversation is something called Canonization of the Gods. And Mark very generously gives us a kind of quick and dirty intro um, in the course of the conversation, but I'm going to give you um, right now a skeleton of the basic plot, and this is largely adapted from the book itself. So here is what the basic storyline is. The last Shang Dynasty ruler, King Zhou, insults the goddess Nuwa by writing an obscene poem about how hot she is. Okay? So she decides to end his reign. She's really insulted, and she supports the founding of a new dynasty by two guys, King Wen and King Wu, and you'll hear about them um, in a little bit. She gets the Taoist Council of Gods to decree a new heavenly mandate, and she hires some unruly spirits to help Wen and Wu destroy Zhou's reign by corrupting him and plunging his government into disorder. A bunch of spirits bring Joe down, including a fox spirit, a nine-headed pheasant spirit, and the spirit of a jade lute. I love that, the spirit of a jade lute. I think that's just great. Okay, so at the end of the story, the souls who fought on either side and thus sacrificed their lives to bring a new order to the realm are promoted into the heavenly ranks with their names registered on the list of canonizations, thus canonization of the gods. So this is the basic storyline. And what you're going to hear in the hour to come um, is sort of Mark and I talking about the way that his particular understanding and reading of this book, um, again, really helps us see the imbrication, the interweaving, the interthreading of realms that we otherwise might hold as separate imperial history, ritual history, literary history, and much, much more. Okay, so with that, I will leave you to it and just say thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support of the channel. And I hope that you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Mark Muhlenbeld about his new book, Demonic Warfare, Taoism, Territorial Networks, and the History of a Ming Novel. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you thank for you, negotiating um, the time difference and everything, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Okay, so Mark, let's start off, as is traditional for the channel, by talking a little bit about what brought you to the field. Why China and why this particular period in Chinese history? Yeah. Well, that's probably most people would say that a very difficult question to answer uh, and yet very simple. Uh, I always like to do languages uh, a lot uh, and was raised bilingually and just got fascinated by things that were further away than the languages that I had learned, uh, European languages mostly. So uh, then I got interested in, in uh, Japanese culture and Chinese culture. And uh, I went to this information day in Leiden uh, where I was going to study as an undergrad. And it turned out that the people who were studying Japanese all wore ties uh, and, and, and suits. So that made the choice easy. That, that meant I just wanted to study Chinese. That's how I, that's how I came to Chinese. And why this period... Uh, really, uh, actually, that's really because of the uh, the, the the Ming novel 
uh, COG Journey to the West that uh, I started reading, I think, in my uh, probably uh, sophomore year. And that's a fascination that, that never went away. I, re- I really love that story. I still do. Uh, I, if I have a chance, then I usually incorporate some of, of Journey to the West in my, uh, in my classes. So why this particular project? How did you come to work on the Ming novel specifically, its relationship to religious history, and this novel in particular? And we'll talk about the kind of the nature and the significance of this novel in a bit. Yeah, because it partly also thanks to uh, Journey to the West, I got interested in the uh, the way in which quote unquote literary story. Uh, talked so much about gods and, and demons and, and spirits. And among the novels, among the Ming novels studied, there was one other that actually sort of seemed to have been left behind and uh, that actually was, was potentially the most interesting to me, which is Feng uh, Shenyi, uh, the canonization of the gods, uh, simply because in the title it, it, it talked already about about spiritual things. So I just read it and <laughs> it turned out to be a, a flood of... Uh, uh, you know, magic and and exorcism and and uh, demons and and all that kind of stuff. So the the choice was easy to uh, to focus on 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 uh, Feng Shui Yan Yi. Great, thank you. And we'll talk a little bit about a little bit more in a moment about the nature of the novel and how it's been understood and how your study um, really aims to and I think successfully transforms how we understand it. But first, let's talk a little bit about how this became a book manuscript from the dissertation. Now, were there any transformations from dissertation to book in how you were kind of structuring the project, how you were thinking about the project, what you thought of in terms of your audience and what you were arguing? of anything notable for you about that process? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, very clearly. So when I wrote the dissertation, my interest was uh, basically uh, in thunder gods. So thunder gods, uh, gods of thunder are one major kind of, uh, of character that is described in, uh, in canonization of the gods. And as I was taking as I was taking grad seminars at Princeton, uh, I noticed that even in Tang Dynasty tales and Song Dynasty uh, tales, there were there were lots of thunder gods already popping up and already uh, thunder ritual being described. So my dissertation really focuses on that and and, and tries to uh, sort of map out the history of of thunder gods and how uh, they represent one very peculiar thing about Chinese religion, which is that it's possible uh, for a lowly demonic entity, so to speak, you know, a spirit that that local communities uh, fear uh, and for that reason also sacrifice to, so revere, how how such an entity can end up somehow as a very high god, uh, uh, you know, and and particularly high gods in the Taoist pantheon. And it turns out that the thunder gods really represented the idea of the concept of this, of this transformation very well because they were uh, so closely linked to thunder ritual, which in effect does this, makes makes this transformation possible uh, for demons to become gods. So the dissertation focused on that. And uh, really, I, I tried to do some historical in-depth you know, reading of, of very ancient texts and then work my way through different dynasties and end up in the Ming dynasty. So it, it, it was really, uh, on the one hand, very focused on thunder gods and thunder ritual. On the other hand, very uh, broad in the, in the way that it uses, it, it goes through time periods and, and doesn't have a much bigger or didn't have a much bigger unifying thought behind it. It was really just a focus on gods and thunder gods and thunder ritual. So as I was preparing my book manuscript, one thing that I really found lacking was uh, the connection that I never thought of, the connection that existed between thunder gods and thunder ritual and society. So the way that, for example, Taoists used their rituals, uh, what they did with it, uh, what people then you know, subsequently did with the product of these thunder rituals, how it was important to the uh, imperial state, you know, all these cross connections basically situating thunder gods and thunder ritual in a broader social historical context and more more narrowly focused on, on let's say, the, the late imperial age. That's really the way that I, I, I changed my dissertation. Yeah, I think that's, that's what I would say. 
Great. Thank you so much. And we'll talk a little bit more about these thunder rituals um, in a few moments. But first, um, let's really kind of get into the context. So what I'm going to do is say a little bit to contextualize this. But first, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about this novel. Now, um, we've talked about this one particular novel, and the book is broadly interested in the relationship between this novel and, and between vernacular novels more generally and vernacular rituals. So we've got this really interesting thread of the vernacular that's going to weave through the book. And we've also got this thread of the kind of relationship, the intertwining between literature, religion, and also community. So we'll get to all of that in a few moments. Now, as you've mentioned, the book focuses on a particular novel, The Canonization of the Gods. So let's start there. How has this been understood in the past in academic discourse or sort of mainstream academic discourse? And how does your particular way of treating this novel in the book um, aim to change that? Yeah, so the the major way in which it has been understood, I would say almost obviously, is as literature, and 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 uh, that has been one of the driving forces behind my uh, monograph, of course, to show that what has been called a literary or a novel of, of literary fiction is in fact not. No, it's not literature in the same way that we use the word now, related to an individual author. Uh, who 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 has this 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 creative mind and and uh, invents some story and basically also uh, in a secularized uh, way. So you know even if you talk about gods and demons, it probably means something else. It probably is not actually related to religion because uh, literature, basically in in a very uh, generalized sense, you know basically re- literature is not religion. So that's something that I really wanted to show that fiction. Uh, in the way we understand it uh, in modern literary studies is not a concept that really applies to uh, to this novel and to some of its contemporary novels, like, for example, Jury into the West, um, but that it's really rooted in, uh, in, 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 in ritual practices um, and, uh, for lack of a better word, religious, uh, religious practices. So that's really one, one way in which it has been understood as literature and one way in which I wanted to redefine it uh, not as literature, basically. not as fiction, at least, not as a, uh, as a, uh, uh, an, a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Great. And one of the things that we'll talk about um, as our conversation progress- progresses is that, um, at least insofar as I read the book, it's not that the book is necessarily saying fiction is irrelevant, right? Or literature is irrelevant here. It's rather an invitation to us as readers, I think, to help use this case study to rethink what it is we're thinking about when we think about literature, right? And we think about fiction. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, thanks for saying that. Um, in particular, because you know, I, you know, I, I tend to talk a lot about, uh, and also my first chapter uh, is is dedicated to sort of reconsidering the history in which uh, the concept of modern literature uh, was introduced to China. Mm-hmm. So that's something I, I talk about in my first chapter. But um, it's not simply a critique of the way that literary studies looks at. Uh, literary products, but it's also the way in which, for example, in religious studies or in uh, historical studies, people um, don't think that something that has traditionally been called a novel could be of some value for them as well. So in general, I think very few people who study Chinese religion uh, of the Ming or Qing dynasties have actually used novels in a serious way. And, and I think that uh, these these books they have a lot to tell um, other than uh, an interesting story but they can they, they they're really a, a treasure trove of data for studying religion as well yeah great and this um, as long as we're there I'll just mention for listeners that this first chapter that you're talking about the invention of the novel looks closely at the late 19th and early 20th century formulation of the academic discipline of Chinese literature and it, it argues that it was in this period right the late 19th and the early 20th centuries when Xiao became, um, in the words of the book, equated with a modern secular understanding of literary fiction in general and of the novel in particular. Um, And this becomes really important um, to take on and to kind of correct because, as the book argues in this first chapter, the way that Xiao Shuo has typically been understood has removed late Ming vernacular narratives from the religious context in which the book um, kind of wants to understand them. And these contexts um, are 
sort of will variously explore um, over the course of the hour. These include temples, they include rituals, and we'll talk more about that, theater, um, and also the gods that these books embodied. So this becomes actually a really important genealogy um, to kind of set up and also to help extricate um, this from in terms of giving it some new context and by giving it its original context. Okay, yep. so so let's get um, further into it. Now, getting back to the beginning of the book, the main argument of the study, as it's articulated in the introduction, and this is again in the words of the book, is that ritual practices form the primary reference in the broad cultural domain to which this book, Canonization of the Gods, belongs. So the book focuses on a particular set of ritual practices um, known as thunder ritual, and thunder rituals here, um, as you talk about in the introduction, are used to capture, again, in the words of the book, unruly and uncanonical spirits that enthrall local communities. And local communities are going to be important in the conversation to come. And to transform them into sacred beings that are aligned with cultural institutions that transcend any single locality or region. So listeners are probably going to have picked up on the importance of the local and local mm-hmm. communities. And that's um, something that, uh, again, seems very important to the work that the book does and something that we'll talk about in the, in the chapters to come. Now, looking at material, uh, or th- the book looks at martial gods in particular in what you call demonic warfare. Okay, so this is the title of the book. Uh, you talk about this in the introduction, and it seems worth spending um, just a little while talking about what that means. So, Mark, for listeners, what is demonic warfare? Um, what's important about that concept, and why is it so important um, to the work that the book does? Okay. Um, well, so let's first think about the term demon. Uh, this is something that I, uh, I, I, I sort of touch upon in the introduction, um, saying that terms like demon or uh, uh, specter, you know, all these uh, terms that, especially in Chinese, there are many words uh, that denote negatively uh, spiritual beings. And um, one of the things that I would like people to realize is that often these are very subjective. So what for one person looks like a demon, for another person uh, looks very much like uh, a venerable god. And this is where the local comes in because many of the uh, the, the local cults of worship that were uh, common in villages, um, you know, they they would have their own gods uh, that they had venerated for uh, for centuries in in their own temples. Um, from the outside, these gods they never looked like anything orthodox. So, uh, from from a, from a, uh, an imperial magistrate's perspective, who would be introduced to that region to uh, to govern uh, these local gods, they were basically uh, they were basically demons, or you know at least they were heterodox beings. So, so in, in that sense, the term demon is very uh, is very. Uh, subjective. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I use it because it also denotes the fact that if you talk about um, if you talk about demons and you compare it, if, if you put if you put an if you put it into the context of a narrative uh, with local um, spirits on the one hand and state or um, um, larger institutions like Taoism on the other hand, you already get a comparative. Uh, sort of a hierarchy of understanding, and demons are simply at the bottom, uh, whether you call them demons or not. But the being is denoted as as demons; they are at the bottom. So, um, um, this also goes for. Um, sorry, I have to uh, mm-hmm. let me think for a moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So local local communities. So these gods in local communities that would be worshipped, um, they usually would also be the gods that were thought to be in charge of demonic armies that could protect those local communities. Mm -hmm. So um, whenever there was uh, a threat from the outside, be it uh, pirates or be it uh, 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 an army of of, uh, alien invaders, there would be the tendency to marshal the forces of these gods, the demonic forces of these gods, and have local fighters, you know, local militias, basically, uh, fight under the tutelage of these gods. Um, you know, so they would go to war, as I say in the book, more or less shoulder uh, to shoulder, demons uh, together with gods, uh, and uh, sorry, uh, demons together with, with human beings, and they would feel protected by those gods, and they would feel strengthened by them. Uh, in many cases, they would be possessed by them. So you would have uh, local 
strong men, people who were just who, who grew up in their village, uh, who would be possessed by gods, uh, uh, demons, etc. And then they would feel stronger, they would feel invincible, and, there, and therefore they could uh, wage a war uh, and protect their village against the outside. So I just want to make clear that in that description, you not only talked about like transforming into demons, but you also talked about pirates and alien invaders. So everyone just go out and buy the book because pirates, <laughs> alien invaders, demons, it's all good. Okay, so thank you so much. All right, so we've already talked a little bit about the first chapter, right? This chapter that lays out a genealogy for understanding the late Ming vernacular novel within this context of a sort of um, literary production. And we've already talked about the ways that the book um, is at least starting to upend that. So let's talk specifically about this novel, because... Many listeners um, may not be familiar with, um, you know, the basics, sort of what it's about. So chapter two offers a cultural history of this novel, Canonization of the Gods. Now, the chapter argues that there are quite a few precursors of its plot that can be found in archaic history, and that these versions of the skeleton of the plot are related to a ritual for consecrating inimical gods as territorial guardians. Okay. Yes. So um, to kind of get us started, let's give listeners a super quick and dirty version of the skeleton of the basic plot. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this to me was really an exciting uh, find, actually, that, you know, this this story. So a quick and dirty version is that the novel, the Ming Dynasty novel, Canonization of the Gods, tells a story about the founding of the most hallowed uh, the most uh, the golden age of China, basically, in which uh, Confucius, the great sage, lived himself, namely the Zhou Dynasty. So the story told in Canonization of the Gods is about the uh, the early part, basically the the dynastic struggle, uh, the battle that led to the founding of the Zhou Dynasty, uh, supported by the literary king King Wen and the martial king King Wu. So that's basically uh, the 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 basic skeletal plot of that novel. And it turns out that story, of course, has been told in, in much earlier versions uh, since the uh, people uh, knew that this history had taken place in the, what was it, in the, the, the first millennium uh, before the Common Era. And to me, the exciting thing was that very soon after after the the historical event took place, this story was told in reference to, uh, as you just called it, the, the transformation of... of uh, local inimical gods into defenders of the territory. So turns out that the title of the Ming Dynasty novel, uh, Canonization of the Gods, uh, really relates to a long string, a long sequence of narratives that focus on that same practice, the, the, the canonization of uh, local protectors of the earth into, uh, well, let's say dynastic protectors of the earth. So to me, that, that was really a, a very interesting, a very interesting um, find. And actually something that if you talk about transformation from thesis to book, I, I didn't realize when I was uh, writing the thesis at all. Right. So this is actually a point that's made very forcefully in this chapter, right? Many of the seemingly fictional characters in the version of the story um, that you just gave us the skeleton of in canonization are taken right out of the ritual pantheons that local communities deployed against unruly spirits. So you have this really interesting way that the gods here um, in this novel are rooted in specific vernacular traditions of local communities. So again, the, the importance of local communities is really, really important. Here. Yeah, if, if I may uh, course, yeah, uh, step please. in there. Right, so uh, the interesting thing about it is that uh, if you look at all the characters in the Ming Dynasty novel, um, and as you rightly say, many of them, they are taken out of uh, existing, uh, let's say, religious or local context. So what is local about those protagonists, the characters in the novel, really is that it turns out that many of them, and you know, we, we don't know, we don't know uh, the complete repertoire of all these uh, of all these characters, but quite a few of them, we know that they existed first as objects of worship, so as as local saints, basically, uh, in different localities of China, all over China. So. What it really does, the story, uh, you know, the Ming Dynasty novel version of the story has about 400 different characters. So it really weaves together um, sort of a tapestry of local gods into one big narrative that, 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 that talks about the founding of China. So it, it really brings into more or less 
an authoritative position, all these local little godlings uh, that you could call demons from a, from a, from an imperial perspective into a uh, uh, into the sacred history of China. So. So there's that aspect of it, the, the, the locality and the, the demonic gods who are really uh, sort of the yarn out of which this, this, this tapestry is, is, is woven. Um, but it's not just that they are individual gods, but they are always situated in rituals. They're always situated in, uh, in exorcisms. Um, and these, these exorcisms that were used by local Taoists, local shamans, well, local exorcists, to put it simply. So these rituals... Usually, they revolved around one particular local god who was uh, not simply, you know, bestowing a good harvest or bringing rain to the locality, but who also, you know, as we just already discussed with the the, lo- the demonic warfare, who also was in 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 command of an army of of demons. So. Uh, other than uh, fighting, uh, let's say, pirates or, or, or Mongol armies, these gods would also be good at fighting other demons, right? So that's where the exorcist aspect comes in, where you have uh, local exorcist rituals that revolve around local gods who are then brought into a larger narrative, basically also of exorcism. You know, the, the skeletal plot of, of uh, the founding of the Zhou dynasty, as it turns out, is very simple, namely how... Uh, the last king of the uh, of the prece- of the dynasty that precedes the Zhou dynasty, namely the Shang dynasty, how this last king is enamored by uh, a fox a spirit who possesses a beautiful princess, and then everything goes wrong. And the end of the book basically is how the fox spirit gets exercised, and and then the new dynasty is is established. So, in in a sense, the whole narrative is a narrative of exorcism. Great. Now, for listeners who are particularly interested in the Yuan Ming relationship, this chapter, chapter two, also looks very closely at a Yuan dynasty version of the story called Plain Tale of King Wu's Conquest of King Zhou. And that plain tale is going to recur throughout the book. So I just wanted to mark that that's there. Now, the the chapter also asks a larger question, and this is something that we talked briefly about before, but I want to give you an opportunity to say a little bit more about it if you want. So this is a Again, um, in the words of the book, given the large body of antecedent materials that make up this story, and these include literature, theater, ritual, historiography, epigraphy, um, and other materials, to what extent is a notion like fiction still applicable or even relevant? So did you want to speak a little bit to that? Because that seems to me to be a a quite significant point here that the book is making. (laughs) Yeah, well... (laughs) Uh, so it's a very important point. It's also very difficult to uh, to pinpoint the point, so to speak, because you know, as, as you as you pointed out, and as I already mentioned, also one one basic uh, motivation of the book is to show that uh, what has been called fiction really couldn't be, you know, so callously called fiction. You have to be a little bit more cautious in applying the term. However, um, obviously. You know, the, uh, even, even if all these protagonists uh, did exist as uh, objects of, of worship, uh, as, as um, the protagonist in, in exorcist ritual, etc., of course, they didn't exist as, uh, uh, as a story in that sense. So they were taken into a context that they didn't belong to. And that is, of course, uh, fictional. Uh, in, in, in a very strict sense. It, that, so there's that aspect. There is the, the, the fact that someone, you know, put all these characters together into a story uh, and, then, uh, and, and then told them in a way, you know, with, with, a, with a narrative flow. That, that is fiction. But uh, all, separately, also many of, these, uh, many of these characters, they existed not just in ritual, but also in theater. Uh, so you would have very extensive episodes, um, you know, Acted out in, in on a theatrical stage that may may have lasted for a, for a whole day, a theater piece like that. That obviously, um, you know, it wouldn't even be described to such great length in in the novel, and yet, uh, yeah, it's also fictional. Uh, you know, so there is a lot of how, how should I say it? A lot of uh, the, the the lines that separate fiction and nonfiction are very hard to uh, uh, to draw i think um, so you know it's it's that is part of the of the project of course to not simply say it's not a fiction but it's it's also to say it's not not a fiction right yeah. thank you 
So as we move from here to chapter three, we move into a chapter um, that's very much a pivot for the book. So chapter three relates Taoist exorcism rituals to the formation of communal networks. And we'll talk about this, um, I think, at some length. So the chapter argues that these rituals, such as thunder ritual, involve the Taoist martial divinities that were treated in the chapter that we just talked about, not to destroy demonic spirits, but instead, in the words of the book, to produce a clearly circumscribed hierarchy of divinities. Okay, so we have at least a couple of interesting things happening here. We've got this thunder ritual, and we've got this production of a hierarchy of divinities. So let's take on one and then the other. For listeners who don't have any idea what we're talking about, we say thunder ritual, right? Aside from the fact that it's maybe involving thunder somehow. What is thunder ritual, Mark? Um, Kind of simply put, and why is it so important here? Simply put, thunder ritual is uh, a a Taoist practice um, that captures uh, demons usually by by deploying the force of, of other demons that already have been captured and that have been enlisted. So it's, it's, you could say uh, it's kind of a, a police ritual or a military ritual uh, in order to, uh, to make uh, prisons of war. And once you have captured these, these demons, uh, you know, um, this could be done during a bout of someone who was possessed or claimed to be possessed by uh, by a spirit, then a Taoist would would uh, would do a thunder ritual and uh, expel the spirit from usually the woman uh, who was possessed by uh, by the spirit, and then uh, probably you know at least to the outside world uh, would pronounce uh, slogans in effect saying, uh, "You demon, either uh, you submit and you do." Uh, you know, you try to uh, uh, to, uh, to to transform your life, to reform yourself, and to do good for community. Or I now destroy you. And of course, uh, facing such a choice, most demons, at least as the anecdotes and the narratives have it, most demons would submit and would then be uh, deployed, would be enlisted uh, by by the Taoists to become themselves, uh, you know, a police force to fight other demons. That's, that's in a nutshell, in a long nutshell, that's thunder ritual. <laughs> okay, awesome. So what about this point about the hierarchy of divinities? Why um, is the point that this hierarchy um, is produced so important for the work that you're doing here? Yeah, well, first of all, because, I mean, this fits into the debate of... of uh, uh, um, unity or, or uh, uh, you know discontinuity you know continuity or discontinuity so the, the debate about what how we should look at, at Chinese culture how we should look at the Chinese past um, and one sort of uh, footnote that I would like to uh, contribute to that to that debate uh, which I think is still ongoing is um, basically saying well there were forces at work in late imperial society that really tried to forge, let's say, uh, a coherent structure uh, of, of gods, a society of gods. And, and so um, that has several implications. If these forces uh, were successful, and I think in, in some ways they, they were successful, uh, it meant, for example, that you could connect local communities to larger structures of uh, of, of, of governance, of, of communication, probably of, of uh, economy, etc., simply by uh, allowing the local gods to uh, to play a role in the hierarchy of of, of, of the nation, so to speak, of, of the empire, um, and that would ha- that would have a two way effect. It would have the effect that localities would feel more empowered. Uh, you know, you can also say, of course, the the poor sods they were all uh, colonized. Um, it doesn't have seemed to work that way. I think it, it worked both ways. Uh, the, the, uh, there was a, a tendency to be happy with the fact that there was a connection, both from the, the empire or the, the central institution like Taoism towards the village, uh, but also the other way around. Uh, they felt they had more reservoirs of, of demons, for example, to fight with, and they would also have more prestige if their local god could be uh, promoted into a, a, a larger uh, hierarchy. So there's that aspect. To me, what what really was fascinating is one of the things that the the novel 
in this respect uh, promotes is the idea that there is a hierarchy of, of gods, a society of gods um, related to temples. So mm-hmm. you will have... Um, you will have the the highest gods of of the popular pantheon, the, being the Jade Emperor uh, and and his uh, uh, his martial uh, peer, so to speak, the the Dark Emperor. Uh, and they would stand at the top of of this hierarchy, with right below them uh, uh, a god called the the Emperor of the Eastern Peak, who was on the one hand. Um, you know, a god of the underworld, so he was already an overseer of, of uh, demonic spirits, of, of gloomy spirits, etc., uh, on various levels. Um, and uh, he, this this god, uh, you know, he had temples all throughout the empire. Um, basically, every major region would have a, a Taoist temple of the eastern peak uh, dedicated to uh, to establishing or to maintain this network, this society of gods uh, under the, the the purview of the Jade Emperor and the Dark Emperor. And below them, there would be even uh, uh, lower temples like the City God and, and then the Earth God in every level. So it's really uh, a hierarchy that didn't just exist in the vision of of, of Taoist, but actually was built uh, by means of temples. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. And that actually comes out really strongly in this chapter. So just to kind of summarize um, and recap for listeners, um, the chapter is showing, just to kind of recap what you were just saying, that um, specifically in southern and southeastern China, in the Yuan, um, Thunder Ritual is doing these three things that you talked about, right? It's transforming local terrestrial gods into demon soldiers that were part of this Taoist liturgical structure. Um, this structure is running from the lowest local earth gods to these super high jade emperors and Dark Emperor, and also um, that the local terrestrial gods were made into an army that included local militias. And this becomes important because you talk about this in terms of communal armies. So the communities we're talking about here, these local communities, are not just communities of mortals, right? They're also communities of gods. And so I think it's also really interesting to push that notion of the communal and the sort of local community into a space where we're thinking not just in terms of the human, but we're thinking about communities that also incorporate the other than human, right? Or Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for nuancing uh, uh, my own narrative. You know, I, I'm very happy. You, you really read the book well. You know, it makes me glow of oh. pride. Oh, <laughs> I'll stop. Or go yeah. on. Go on. No, just kidding. Um, so as you mentioned, temples are really important to this. Yep. And I just want to, um, you've already talked really beautifully about that. I just want to underline that um, for listeners because that is something that comes up kind of throughout the book. Yeah. And, and just to, uh, to step in again, um, this idea that indeed uh, community is not only uh, mortals, uh, but it includes uh, sort of the, the the realm of the invisible. So anything spiritual, be it gods or be it uh, the souls of the diseased, uh, who are of course not mutually exclusive, um, but that there is there, or there was at least a strong a strong tendency to want to have both realms in order uh, and you know people's social institutions or uh, governance bodies in the late imperial age, probably had, uh, at least to some extent, that kind of double-edged order uh, in mind uh, in, in, um, you know, in, in, in rituals, in, uh, uh, but even in, in, in governance. So as I, as I make the argument um, in chapter, I forget which one, maybe chapter four or something, that even the, the Ming emperors, uh, they were quite involved uh, with building that kind of uh, an empire that ni- that didn't just rule over uh, the, the living, but also ruled over the dead. That's right. And that really nicely actually gets us to chapter four, which is a chapter that really, um, I think, um, comprehensively does that work to locate this within not just a history of you know, ritual and literature, but also of imperial history. So this is um, a really important chapter, I think, chapter four, that brings together ritual studies and imperial history in important ways. So this locates the Taoist rituals that were described in the chapter we were just talking about, chapter three, within the imperial politics of the Ming dynasty. So here, we're going to look at what's happening 
with um, the founder of the Ming. We're going to look at um, some of the innovations that he makes to ritual practice. We're also going to look a little bit at the legal code, um, which is actually really interesting here. So let's start at the beginning. The chapter argues that the liturgical structure that was described in the previous two chapters was (coughs) implemented on an imperial scale by Taoist experts in thunder ritual, and they did this at the behest of the early Ming emperors. So in particular, the Ming founder, Zhu Yuanzhang, built the empire you're arguing here on a foundation of local terrestrial spirits that could be enlisted as demon soldiers. Okay, so why don't we just, I'm going to hit the ball back to you at this point. (laughs) For you, what are some of the most important ways that this is happening um, for the Ming founder um, that, that kind of has reverberations for the rest of the story? Right. Well, um, so I start out that chapter by mentioning, I think by, by juxtaposing it to the preceding dynasty, the Yuan dynasty, which is, uh, you know, you, of course you can debate, uh, but it's, it's uh, a, a foreign rule dynasty. And these, uh, so the Mongols, and they probably had less affinity with these local networks, and therefore they feared them. Uh, they feared them more. So basically, the Yuan Dynasty was very much trying to suppress local cults and uh, didn't try to co-opt them in the way that the Ming Dynasty founder and, and some of his successors understood they should do, namely simply by uh, including those, well, let's say the dark forces of local societies into their uh, into their power structure. Uh, they would actually uh, benefit from it. So. Uh, the Ming founder and, and his son and, and some other later emperors, what they really did was to institute on the basis of that uh, liturgical structure, so the Taoist uh, structure who uh, weaves this this network uh, out of uh, demonic yarn. Um, so they, they tried to institute that uh, both first in, in, in Nanjing, the, 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 the southern capital city, and later in Beijing, the northern capital city. So using that structure, local earth god, uh, a city god, uh, temple of the eastern peak, uh, and then jade emperor, uh, and some, of, some other peripheral gods. So really making that same kind of uh, uh, divine hierarchy and uh, uh, basically – inviting Taoist specialists of thunder ritual to court uh, to do, well, we don't know really how much they, uh, they were involved in, in the, the marshalling of local spirits into the hierarchy, but we do know that they were used uh, or they were uh, employed in actual warfare, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as commanders over demonic armies. So in that sense, even the, the, the Ming uh, some of us, at some point in history, at least the the Ming armies would uh, would also would also uh, deploy demonic gods that were marshaled through thunder ritual. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so one of the innovations that you talk about here that seem particularly important is something called the altar for baleful spirits, and there's a That's right, focus yeah. on that right in this chapter. Yeah. What is that, and why is that important? So there is. Basically, in Chinese, uh, in the Chinese conception of how uh, of, of of death, there is the idea that uh, one should hopefully die uh, a natural death. So, everyone who dies a natural death ultimately will uh, probably somehow end up within the, the the reservoir of ancestral spirits and kind of become anonymous and and ultimately uh, be recycled into the the. Uh, the dynamics of, of the cosmos. So basically, uh, the ideal course of death for a spirit is to dissolve, to disappear, uh, and to only be remembered, uh, you know, under the larger rubric of your lineage. But of course, not everyone died naturally, and, and uh, many people would uh, would die prematurely in war uh, because they were sick, uh, maybe because they committed suicide. Even the fact. You know, women dying without offspring would also be conceived as, you know, dying prematurely because you hadn't fulfilled your your uh, assumed uh, course of life. Now, for all those who die prematurely, uh, it was a problem because they could not go to the ancestral altar. So they would sort of hover between the spheres of the living and the dead without having a lodging, uh, without receiving sacrifices, uh, so they would be hungry and hapless and, and cold and they needed shelter. And these these spirits were, you know, prime suspects to become demons or to to uh, to engage in 
this kind of uh, dangerous, uh, threatening deeds that the demons would be uh, uh, accused of. So, of course, what better institution to establish for a Ming emperor who was interested in uh, in marshalling the dark forces is uh, is is the altar of. Uh, altar for billful spirits. So these billful spirits, uh, the spirits of people who dis- who died prematurely, they could then find a lodging and indeed be introduced into that hierarchy overseen by all these different uh, Taoist gods. And instead of posing a threat, ideally, of course, instead of posing a threat, they would uh, work for the the empire. They would cooperate with it and and, and help it. So. Yeah, I think that's really one of the important things that the uh, the Ming founder instituted. Great. Now, the chapter also looks at um, a prohibition in the Great Ming Code, which also kind of gives some texture to the way we might understand um, how soldiers, right? How soldiers and people were relating to gods um, and what what might have been something that was happening enough to prohibit, right? Um, so you bring us into the prohibition in the Great Ming Code against soldiers and people dressing up like gods and performing certain other actions, right? Right. Um, so did you want to just say a little bit about that and why that's interesting to you here? <laughs> well, it's interesting for the fact simply that there are these records of uh, uh, records of soldiers doing that, but of course more so the prohibitions against soldiers doing that, namely dressing up as gods. So that in itself is quite funny and, and, and tells us that soldiers did more than just being soldier, right, than, uh, than simply uh, fighting. Um, but it fits into that larger narrative of uh, being possessed by gods or fighting together with gods or probably in many ways, uh, uh, um, you know, fighting while looking like a god. So that that's one way in which it fits into that larger narrative. But aside from that, and this is something that I have to say, you know, there's not a lot of evidence about uh, f- for it, but it it seems to be that very often these these local uh, these soldiers when they were stationed in any given locality, uh they would then become, you know, either and meshed with, or they would somehow be involved with these local gods. And the central government didn't like that. They felt that if that happened, it would probably uh, give too much power to the localities. Um, so that's why, uh, probably, again, you know, this is this is really something that uh, there's not too much evidence for. But it looks like the, the, the central government, the imperial government, didn't want the soldiers to uh, empower localities, you know, by taking away power from the, the central government. That, that's the way it looks like. Great. Thank you so much. So by the end of the chapter, the chapter, and I'll, I'll just mention this for listeners, then we'll move on. The chapter also shows that the pantheon that's deified at the end of the book Canonization of the Gods can be traced back to this earlier Ming period. Um, so it's actually um, really interesting, and it locates it in Ming Taoist ritual. Right, right. Right. So as we move to the last body chapter of the book, and we move sort of toward, right, at least the conclusion of our conversation, we move into a chapter that situates the canonization of the gods within the cultural sphere of the late Ming. Now, this chapter begins with a question, and it's something that we've already touched on a little bit. What is it that novels do? Right. So yeah. sort of, and this is a somewhat, this is a subtle change, but an important change from what we were talking about before. This is not asking us just to consider what is fiction, how is fiction, how might we think about what fiction is, but it's also asking us to think about, okay, what does this particular instantiation of fictional work do as work? Right. What kind of efficacy does it have? The chapter shows that the Ming vernacular novel offers, um, and this is uh, again in the words of the book a relational framework for explaining and emulating the hierarchical relationships of local spirits with higher gods. Okay, so this idea of a relational framework um, is kind of highlighted here and seems important. So can you uh, talk a little bit about that notion for listeners? For you, what is a relational framework insofar as you're um, describing it here? And and what's important about this in terms of the work that you're trying to do here? Right. So in the first place, in the most simple way, what happens in, in basically throughout the book is I, I show how narratives are brought together. So, for example, how are the narratives of uh, local spirits brought, you know, into the larger symphony, so to speak, of a of a, of a, a dynastic narrative, and uh, that already implies 
the notion of a relation. So how are things brought into relationship with each other? Um, how is a local God brought into relation uh, to, uh, to, to a higher God, uh, a non-Taoist with, with a Taoist, etc.? So that's one thing I say that the novel exemplifies or, or explains the fact that it is possible for seemingly unrelated entities like a local God uh, and, and, uh, and a dynastic uh, orthodox uh, God, so to speak, uh, how they actually could be related. So the novel shows us how that could be uh, conceived. Um, the other way in which to uh, think about it is that if you have this society of gods that is related to uh, real living communities, it also suggests that you know these local communities, they could be brought into a relationship with, <laughs> with, again, with the empire or with uh, bigger cities, etc. Uh, so there's, there's, you know, there's again this double aspect of of, uh, of the invisible world and the visible world. And finally, in in the actual context of warfare, where and this is maybe something that we'll we'll still touch upon in concluding, but where actual battle has been uh, waged, that uh, you have sort of models for almost like a command structure of, of how to to organize yourself on the basis of that divine hierarchy. So how can a local band of local militias, uh, how can they uh, be, be, be fighting in, you know, in a larger context of uh, you know, several communities, a whole province or several provinces together? And, and probably you know, this is something that the novel um, might have helped uh, explaining. Right. And, and let's actually um, talk a little bit more about this. This is actually what I wanted to ask you to talk about before we concluded. So I'm glad mm-hmm. we're there. So the chapter actually argues, um, and this is just kind of picking up on a thread that you've already um, started unraveling a little bit. It argues that local communities throughout Jiangnan are actually defending their territory by appropriating the powers of martial gods from late Ming vernacular novels, such as canonization. And one of the things that you're showing here, and I think this is is really interesting, and um, there are some illustrations in the book that help give this kind of uh, visual power. You're arguing here that, among other things, these novels helped warriors actually imagine themselves and and go to war and imagine what it might look like and feel like to go to war in particular ways, right? So this is again a very particular kind of argument to be making, like the sort of the way that these novels created a particular kind of imaginary that then gets taken up and put to work in a embodied by actual soldiers who are then using it um, to inform and shape their practices. So do you, uh, would you talk about that a little bit? For you, what's particularly interesting about that? Well, um, one aspect is, is interesting to me because it relates also to, uh, to theater and you know things that people would most likely uh, be able to see a lot around them, and probably they would find them much more interesting to watch than, uh, let's say, Taoist ritual. Uh, which even I, studying Taoist ritual, find sometimes very tedious to watch over you know several days. Um, namely, the fact that if you emulate a demon, one thing you do is you paint your face. Uh, so there are these stories about people who go to war and they would paint their faces. And this is something that, of course, is not, not just limited to China. Uh, you, 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 you'll find a lot of other, other cultures as well. Uh, but in the specific case of China, it so happens that uh, the, the facial paintings uh, of demons, um, you, they are basically the same in temples, in Chinese theater, and most likely uh, in those people uh, who went to war empowered by demons. So there is this, uh, let's say, cultural continuum between, uh, again, between theater, uh, uh, warfare, and uh, again, let's say, for lack of a better word, religion. So that's something that, that really uh, that I found interesting in this in this whole aspect of what novels do. They seem to exemplify, for example, uh, that if you go to war, uh, you do it in a certain way. And, and uh, painting your face was probably one of them. 
That's really interesting. <laughs> so Mark, at this point, we have come to the conclusion of our conversation and there is a whole bunch of stuff, right, that we could have talked about that we didn't get to, um, but that listeners will find in the pages of the book. I mean, there's a, a whole um, really interesting description of this eastern peak um, in various chapters that you mentioned briefly as sort of a glue that's holding some of these relations together. There's all kinds of descriptions of um, particular Yuan Dynasty and Ming Dynasty and Instantiations of these gods and these sort of some of them are soil gods and these rituals. There's just a whole bunch of stuff waiting for listeners um, who will get their hands on a copy of the book and hopefully read the book. But in the meantime, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about or that we didn't get to, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Two short things. Uh, one is very simply uh, what I like. What I hope this book does in some ways, and it's definitely something I'll explore more in the future, namely how you connect uh, narratives to things. So, uh, you know, narratives that don't necessarily talk about a temple, that it still is connected to a temple, to a town, to a village, to paintings, uh, etc. So, so that's something that I hope ultimately, you know, this is sort of the larger project of myself in which I, I, I situate this book also. And the other thing is, and that's perhaps the more important thing now, the way in which we tend to look at China through a Western lens, you know, and it's very hard to avoid that, but it's good to be aware of it, right? So uh, the concepts, the categories we use, uh, the classifications we apply, and, they, and, and the way in which they have also been, been uh, taken over in China. So now at Chinese universities, these same Western categories are used and applied. And that's something that I, I, I hope we can start to undo a little bit, or at least try to, to see what we can actually witness if we take away as much as we can of, of the Western lens and, and try to see uh, what kind of picture emerges. So for you, just to, just to kind of ask one more question along those lines, for you, um, at the end of the day, right, what's some of the most important work or the most important work you think the book does as a result of doing that, right? As a result of really trying to move away from this Western lens. And, you know, we've talked about some of the ways that this is happening by creating a genealogy for, Mm -hmm. and then um, asking us to problematize some of the most basic notions that um, people come into a work like this with, right? Fiction, um, novel, religion, right? Um, Take problematizing or troubling some of that, What's for you the take-home that results in this case from doing that? We talked about it already. Really, uh, the idea that um, you shouldn't I, – I, maybe we didn't talk about it very explicitly. The idea that it's not a good mode of operation to study things in isolation. So if you focus on novels as literature, <laughs> you study it, you know, or it, your outcome is kind of predetermined. If you, if you study religion as religion – uh, then also your your outcome is very limited in, in what you might find. So I really hope, I, I think the one thing that I think I'm successful in with the book is that it shows how it may be important to connect some of the dots that otherwise uh, disconnected by way of our classification. I think that, that would be, uh, I would be very happy if people took that seriously on the basis of this book, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. That's that's kind of that's a perfect point to make. And I think um, listeners who are familiar with um, on any level uh, where the history of science and medicine are right now, too, it's very much where some of the most exciting work is going as well. So sort of take apart these categorizations of science or medicine or religion and show how to connect the dots and show their um, kind of imbrication with one another as part of a coherent and common set of practices and contexts. Yeah, well, maybe that's, sorry to interrupt you. Not at all. Uh, maybe that's, in fact, one of the reasons why I'm more and more drawn uh, to that field as well. So the history of medicine and, and science, that's something that really fascinates me. So maybe we'll we'll meet uh, in our research at some point, Carla. Absolutely. And, and speaking of that, um, I'm not going to let you go before asking what you're working on now. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, um, what's next for you? What are you inspired by? What are you working on and researching and writing? <laughs> <laughs> Small questions, uh, right? Yeah. Just like, kind of, what, what's inspiring you right now? What yeah. are you up to? 
Well, what's inspiring me is um, I'm I'm very uh, you know I'm trying to be more or I'm not trying to be I'm figuring out a way of of, of implementing uh, what I feel is uh, intellectual activism. So I really would like to uh, participate in in broader conversations, uh, not just in academia but outside of it, uh, driven by concerns about the environment, you know, ecology, uh, um, but very much also. Speaking of categories, uh, modernity. So the way in which uh, we're all in modernity uh, and we have different ideas of what it means. Um, and then, you know, you know, as modern scholars talking about the objects that we talk about or the, the topics that we talk about, how does it define what we are looking at? Uh, and especially, you know, uh, so being more specific, less abstract, um, my next project will be um, – you know, sort of trying to forge connections between uh, a, a village in Hunan, where I do a lot of field work. I've been there. I've been going there for uh, more than ten years. Um, so, a, a village in Hunan, in the in the province of Hunan in the PRC, where there's a lot of Taoists. Uh, they do a lot of rituals, um, and you know what. Can we learn from them uh, who are at the crossroads of uh, call it tradition uh, and call it modernity, um, you know, w- w- how, how to make sense of what they're doing? What can we learn from them, basically? Um, and, and the way also, you know, I, I ask that question specifically, uh, since they are not, by our standards, completely modern. So the things that define them as not completely modern, wh- why did they hold on to it uh, and how could it be? Valuable, useful uh, for for other people. That's something that I that I'm trying to uh, um, to talk about in my next project. Well, best of luck with that work, Mark. And thanks for taking time away from that work to talk about this work with me. Um, it's really been a pleasure, and best of luck. Well, thank you. This was great. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I felt it was very um, nice to get this opportunity to talk. Uh, as much as it was disjointed, uh, it was still a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.